Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing faith and epistemology. Today I'll be speaking with Ozymandias Ramses II. You may have seen Ozzy on YouTube, in conversation with Matt Dillahunty, Steve McRae, the guys over at Real Atheology, or on his own channel. Ozzy is a wealth of knowledge, and I knew I wanted to bring him on, but I wasn't sure which topic we should discuss until we stumbled on this area of disagreement. Today we'll be discussing whether or not atheists need faith. Ozzy argues that atheists have faith commitments, whether or not we recognize them. That's the main theme of the conversation, though we touch on a few other areas, like Hume's problem of induction, external world skepticism, solipsism, properly basic beliefs, certainty, Alvin Plantinga's reformed foundationalism, reliabilism and our belief-forming mechanisms, presuppositionalism, movement atheism, and other various issues in epistemology. Ozzy and I actually agree in the course of this discussion more than we disagree, but he argues that atheists take properly basic beliefs on faith, whereas I don't think we should describe properly basic beliefs as articles of faith. At the very least, we don't need to. And if we don't absolutely have to, I think we shouldn't. That's the TLDR of my central criticism. At one point, Ozzy explains my position in a way I wish I had thought of, so that's always a good sign in a discussion like this. All right, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will as well. I'm here with YouTuber and fellow alumnus of Miskatonic University, Ozymandias. Ozzy, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. <laughs> So we're here to discuss faith today, and in the book that initially brought him to prominence, Sam Harris calls for, as the title of his book suggests, an end of faith. That is, an end to our respect for faith as a way of knowing something, a repudiation of faith-based institutions, and an end to our compulsory respect for one who would describe himself as a person of faith. So do you have any issues with any of those aspirations? Uh, no, not as stated in his book. Um, in fact, I, I'm someone who actually uh, admires Sam Harris a great deal. I particularly enjoyed that book. Um, in fact, when I first read that book, I was struck by how similar our, our thinking was on the, the whole discourse of faith um, and how we've sort of uh, culturally built a, a hedge around it so that anyone can get away with almost anything, provided that they say that, well, this is just my faith. Mm. Um, it's been this sort of protected domain, uh, which I don't think it deserves. So I'm not a fan of faith in that sense. Uh, nevertheless, I think that there are commitments that everybody has that are ultimately not rationally defensible. And so I think at the at the bottom of everyone's belief set, at the bottom of everyone's worldview, are um, commitments that we have of various sorts, faith commitments um, having to do with ontology, epistemology, axiology. Um, that uh, are unwarranted and I think ultimately unwarrantable. And so they are, strictly speaking, not rationally defensible. And so they are faith commitments. I think that they deserve the word uh, faith being applied to them. Nevertheless, we want to limit those 
Uh, we don't want to have more of those than are strictly necessary. Uh, and uh, we don't want to believe anything on insufficient evidence if we can avoid it. But I think some faith commitments are unavoidable. Mm. Is it okay if I quote the message that sparked this discussion? Yeah, of course, by all means. Okay, I just want to clarify at the beginning for people sort of what you're not defending and, and specifically what you're, what you're going for here. An allergy to the very idea of having faith commitments and presuppositions is endemic within movement atheism. I see that as a liability for the movement and the cause of advancing skepticism and rationality. Some of our very deepest commitments are entirely faith-based, including some which are ingredients to rationality itself. Rationality, I submit, rests on a host of beliefs that are not just unwarranted, but worse, are unwarrantable. Most atheists and skeptics are unsurprisingly averse to such a suggestion, but I think this is a misplaced aversion, stemming from a fear that if they admit to having faith commitments of their own, that this would license anyone to believe any old thing on faith. This latter move is quite avoidable, so it's nothing which a skeptic need worry about, but that misplaced worry is very widespread and is what motivates naive epistemological positions. End quote. So that's what led to this conversation, because I think I disagree with that, though I must confess I don't know exactly how you're going to back some of that up. I, don't, I have some idea of where we're headed with this, but I, for example, I don't know how you're going to cut off religious faith. Would you mind um, just defining our terms here? Like, if we're discussing whether we have faith or need faith, we should try to define what exactly you mean by faith. Right. Uh, what I mean by faith is uh, any belief that is not rationally defensible. That is, you don't have a defense of it, you don't have um, uh, reasons that are themselves rational, you don't have good reasons for them, um, uh, or you have reasons um, that at, at first blush seem reasonable, but upon further investigation are in fact question begging or there, there's some kind of circular reasoning involved. Um, in which case you're violating a core epistemic norm of rationality, if you're violating the rules of deduction, for instance, um, then, of course, that's, that's not a rational defense. So uh, what I mean uh, by faith is merely any, any belief that one sincerely holds uh, that is not rationally defended and even more strongly, in some cases, not rationally defensible at all. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so I mean full-blooded faith. I don't just mean, I mean, you know how some people will sometimes play a kind of shell game with faith, you know, and what they mean by faith is mere, merely confidence, right? Uh, I'm not talking about that, that kind of faith. I'm talking about the, the, the notion of faith in the sense of blind faith. I think we all have blind faith commitments. And it's not that we can't examine them and, and expose them as such. It's that we nevertheless remain committed to them, even in the absence of a proper defense of them. And these would be properly basic beliefs, the things that we have faith in. Right, right. I, and I should definitely say something about what properly basic beliefs are, in my view. Um, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, it helps to sort of say what a basic belief is. Uh, so basic belief is a belief that stands at the core of the rest of your belief set. Think of it as something, that, uh, a crucial strand in your web of belief, right? Or if you like foundationalist analogies, uh, think of it as something that's at the base of the edifice of your of your knowledge. It's like at the base of your pyramid. Okay, that's what a basic belief is. So basic belief is something that's going to influence other beliefs that rest upon that that basic belief. So basic belief can be, for instance, an ontological commitment, a belief about what kinds of things exist, such as the belief that matter exists or that minds exist. It can be axiological, 
That is to say, it can be a belief about what's valuable. It can be an epistemological belief, a belief which would be a kind of meta-belief, a belief about how your beliefs are to be revised or updated, for instance, or what constitutes evidence. Um, so a basic belief is often just assumed or presupposed. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but it often is. Um, and a basic belief can also include consciously adopted beliefs, which are inferred or derived from other beliefs. So that's a basic belief. It's basic in that it's fundamental to your worldview or your belief set. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, so an example of a basic belief would be something like uh, humans are basically selfish. So such a belief is one that's endorsed by many people. Many cynical people think that humans are essentially selfish. Okay. Now, if that's your starting point in your reasoning about people in society, uh, that's going to inform in very significant ways your interactions with others and how you think about society and what laws need to be um, put into place and what our social structures need to look like. Now, such a belief can be abandoned in favor of a different view of human nature. It's revisable, right? Um, you might come to have a more optimistic view, right? Uh, but the idea is that if, it's, if that's a core belief, it's going to entail all kinds of sweeping changes in the rest of your beliefs and attitudes and your behavior. So basic beliefs, because they're basic, are highly consequential. They're not trivial, right? Acquiring or rejecting a basic belief entails typically a lot of belief revision in the rest of your belief set. Now, a properly basic belief, a properly basic belief differs from a basic belief in that it's not derived or inferred from other beliefs. Um, and they're all indispensable to how we acquire, reject, and revise the rest of what's in our belief set. Hmm. In other words, a properly basic belief has a special status, and that's because it's, it's, a, it's a special subset of your basic beliefs in that they form the basis of the rest of your epistemology. Uh, and as such, they appear to be ineliminable from your belief set. So properly basic beliefs, like basic beliefs, they can include ontological commitments about the kinds of things that exist, um, um, such as a, a belief in a mind-independent reality or that other minds exist, um, that we live in a world of causes and effects. Okay, Those would all be, I, I would submit, properly basic beliefs. And I, there are criteria to, to what I think is a properly basic belief. Properly basic beliefs are typically unstated assumptions though that you can become aware of them, right? Usually through reflection or doing some philosophy in the course of a discussion, you know. Uh, but the idea is that uh, properly basic beliefs are things that you were never taught, okay? For instance, you were never taught to trust your senses. No one had to teach you to rely on your memory, right? You were never taught to look for causes and effects, right? You never had to be taught to think of yourself as a self, you never had to be taught to apply induction, right? You were either born with these tendencies, um, but um, uh, or they're just part of the innate uh, architecture of your mind. But no one had to. You did not require instruction in this. No one had to teach you these things. As a result, the second criteria is that they're, they, these are all universally held. We all have them, right? So these are unstated assumptions that we were never taught. They're all universally held. I mean, good luck finding anyone or any culture that doesn't make these assumptions, right? Um, third uh, ingredient uh, was, would be that they, they're, they're ingredients in rationality and reasonableness itself to such a degree that to deny these properly basic beliefs manifests itself as obvious irrationality and even madness. 
Try to imagine a person who lived as if his senses weren't reliable and just didn't trust the evidence of, of any of their senses, and so failed to act on his or her senses, who never assumed that something was an effect of something else, who just you know, appeared to navigate in the world as if causes and effects didn't exist. Right? Or imagine someone who invariably violated basic norms of deduction, such as believing manifest contradictions that everyone could see. Such a person would seem completely daft, right? and their behavior would probably be utterly incomprehensible to us. We might even institutionalize a person like that for his or her own good. So that, that would be the, the, the third condition here, the third criterion in a properly basic belief, along with not being taught and just assumed and being universal, is that they are so fundamental to what we recognize as rationality and reasonableness that if a person violates these, if they don't make these kinds of assumptions, we think that there's something wrong with their minds. Hmm. The fourth would be they cannot be defended except on pain of circularity. That is to say, any defense of these properly basic beliefs almost invariably results in begging the question, that is, assuming the veracity in defense of, the, uh, of them. Um, and so, as a result, they're not just unwarranted, they're unwarrantable. Um, and the la and I can give examples of uh, of this in a, in a moment. But the, the fifth condition is that they're irrevisable. Now, this is not to be confused with saying that these beliefs are indubitable or that they're inerrant. They could be wrong, they, they, and they certainly are subject to doubt. Certainly in philosophy, that's precisely what we do. Um, we scrutinize them. But the idea is that they're irrevisable in that we have no grounds for rejecting them because we'd have to employ them in the very act of supplying reasons for why one might reject them. Mm -hmm. It's not that we couldn't be mistaken about them, in other words, but the grounds for rejecting them are lacking, except on pain of circularity. So as such, properly basic beliefs constitute the very basis by which we can reason and arrive at and revise the rest of our beliefs. And this sets them apart from merely basic beliefs. They are ingredients in rationality. They are, they are the assumptions that you need to make in order to be a reasonable person. So let me give you a few examples of, of specific properly basic beliefs. And, and um, I, I think people will understand in what sense these are universal and you never had to be taught them and that grounds for revising them are absent. Think of the, the our, our commitment to the idea of a mind-independent reality. That's the idea that there's a world out there, outside of our own minds, that the world isn't just some product of our own minds, uh, and that you're not the only mind in existence, right? Um, the idea that there's an objective world. And this doesn't mean physicalism. You could still be an idealist, but even an idealist believes that there are other minds out there, that the world is not a creation of their own mind. So that would be one. Um, another would be the validity-preserving character of logical deduction which would be the assumption that the inference rules of formal reasoning or formal logic yield true conclusions whenever we have true premises and we've correctly applied the inference rules. There's no way to defend this commitment that we have to the validity-preserving character of logical deduction without using deduction. That would be circular reasoning, very obviously. Mm -hmm. Another would be the reliability of induction. So this is just Hume's problem of induction, right? The idea that one can make reliable but not exceptionalist generalizations from specific cases based on experiences is what uh, induction is. We all assume, however, that the future will resemble the past in relevant respects. If, for instance, all the crows you've ever seen are black, you reasonably induce that probably all or most crows are black. Mm 
right? Now, there's all kinds of problems with induction, but the, one of the hardest ones is this defense of the use of induction itself, the justification of induction, right? There's no convincing argument that, that's been put forward to defend one's reliance upon induction without assuming the validity of induction. Now, people, people typically say something, well, look, induction works. Well, what you mean is in the past, induction has worked, but what justification is there for thinking that induction will work tomorrow? And invariably, people argue in a circle and they say, well, in the past, induction worked, so induction is reliable in the future. But that is, of course, to use an induction, to trust an induction in the very justification for induction itself, which is, again, circular reasoning. But this, again, this belief in induction, this reliance um, upon induction is something that is innate. You didn't have to be taught it. You didn't have to learn about it in school. You learned to identify what induction is, but you were practicing induction long before you ever went to school, long before you had a, a natural, acquired a natural language. Cats and dogs seem to apply induction. Um, it's absolutely uni universal, and we don't know how to defend it. And you have been living using induction um, your whole life uh, without any justification offered by anyone. Uh, in fact, most people are rather dumbfounded when they hear about the problem of induction. Uh, another properly basic belief would be the idea of causation. That's the idea that some events bring about other events, right? Everything from a billiard ball hitting one billiard ball and causing it to move to the conviction that your visual experiences are brought about by the things that are, you know, right before your eyes. Um, or when you decide to raise your arm, we, you think that your decision is somehow causally relevant in your arm going up, right? This idea of causes and effect, these are just background assumptions that that we hold and apply. Um, there's lots of others, the very notion of truth and falsity itself, the existence of other minds, um, the reliability in perception, um, your trust in the reliability of your own memory, for instance. There's no way to evaluate or, or to establish that your memories are reliable, for instance, because you'd have to exercise your very memory in any test that you would conduct. There's no fact checking, no hypothesis testing without memory. You have to remember what the hypothesis was. You have to remember what the what the dependent and independent variable are. You have to remember what the results are and you have to make inferences and you have to remember just a whole host of things. At every stage in trying to test the general reliability of human memory or any memory, you would have to assume the general reliability of memory. If you call that into question, your conclusions would go out the window. Um, so those are just some, and there's a whole lot more, but those are all just basic assumptions that we make about reality. These are presuppositions that we have, and whenever we try to uh, justify them, we almost invariably end up arguing in a circle or violating some other epistemological norm. And so that's why I think that they are unwarranted and unwarrantable. And what's special about properly basic beliefs from other basic beliefs is that they're ingredients in rationality. Not everything that you take as basic is so indispensable. My belief, if, I, if I'm a, a pessimist about human nature, and, my, and it's part of my basic belief that humans are selfish and society has to be structured to, in such a way with norms and laws to, to control and restrict people from acting out all their selfish impulses, that is a belief that I could come to revise and recognize as false and reject and and replace with some other belief. Not so my belief in the general reliability of induction. Not so my belief in, in um, the reliability of my senses and my memory. Not so with the validity 
uh, preserving character of deduction. I have no way of revising those beliefs, and yet every one of those beliefs is part of the picture that, um, or part of the assumptions that you have to make if you want to think of yourself or anyone else as a rational person. You know, I think it's surprising how much I agree with you and how much I'm along with you on that whole path, and then I step off just at the last stop, which is because these things are properly basic and because they're unwarrantable, therefore they're taken on faith. But it's actually not a given that I would agree with you that far. Like, there are lots of atheists who reject even the notion of properly basic beliefs to begin with. You know, like someone who I respect a lot, Matt Dillahunty, I saw recently say that nothing is properly basic and he rejects the notion of properly basic beliefs because it's just an excuse to hide that you have no evidentiary warrant to support some presupposition. But things like reason and evidence as you've been pointing out, can't be used in the defense of reason and evidence without presupposing their value. You can't argue that something as basic as evidence should be a part of our epistemological toolkit without circular reasoning. We'd be assuming the value of the thing we're trying to prove has value. And you also mentioned the problem of induction. Could we return to that for a moment? Yeah, sure. So I alluded uh, to it already, but I uh, went over it rather quickly. So um, induction is to be distinguished from deduction. Um, induction is essentially learning from experience and generalizing from those experiences. You look at particular instances and you reach a general conclusion. It's sometimes described as a kind of bottom-up pr uh, procedure. It's what we do in science. It's what you do every day, right? You, you observe every day that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And so you conclude that in the future, that's what's going to happen. So that's what induction is. Hume's problem of, of, of induction is the problem of how to justify induction. There are other issues, other philosophical problems that people have pointed out um, with induction. But um, the, when people talk about the problem of induction, they're talking about the problem pointed out by um, the Scotch philosopher David Hume, who pointed out that when you try to uh, give a rational reason for induction, there's really only two ways to go about it. One is to try to provide a deductive proof for induction. Deduction doesn't teach you anything new. Uh, it just brings out the implications that are already implicit uh, in a set of propositions, whereas induction allows you to generalize beyond the evidence immediately before you. It allows you to, to extrapolate or cant the lever out beyond the, the evidence before you. And that's how you come up with a lot of new knowledge as opposed to merely working out implications of what you already know, um, which is what deduction would do. So Hume's problem of induction was uh, was showing that when you, whenever you try to justify induction, you can't use deduction. So what's left? Well, okay, people will point out that induction works. Look how effective induction is. I mean, I get up in the morning and I put my feet on the floor when I get out of bed and I get up and I, I'm hungry for breakfast and I walk into the kitchen and I know that if I just will myself to walk, I'll be able to get out of bed and walk into the kitchen. I know that uh, there'll, there'll be food in the fridge and that if I open the door, I will see food in the fridge and so forth. All of my actions are predicated on this, these generalizations uh, uh, into the future about uh, based on what has happened in the past. The, the difficulty, though, is that whenever you try to uh, defend induction using induction, um, that is, whenever you try to say that induction um, is going to work in the future because it's worked in the past, 
you are arguing in a circle. You are using, you are relying upon induction to justify the use of induction in the first place. And that's obviously a circular argument. That's a violation of a deductive norm. Right. So you're, you're taking on the principle of induction and saying, well, look, it's worked up until now. And it's like, right. that, that is inductive reasoning. And right. as David Hume pointed out, this is just a matter, the, the fact that we accept induction is not the result of some rational argument, but just a matter of, you know, brute animal habit. And um, he pointed out that when we're using inductive reasoning, we're presupposing something called the uniformity of nature. We're basically just assuming that the world is going to behave the same in the future going forward as it has so far. You know, that's, indu that's what induction is ultimately based on. And then when we try to justify the uniformity of nature, we say, well, nature has been uniform up until now, so surely that gives us good reason for thinking it will continue to be uniform. But that begs the question, you know, that is itself an inductive argument. Right. Now, I mean, it, it, it's bewildering when people hear this because they think, well, what's the alternative? And it, well, there isn't an alternative. But the fact that there isn't an alternative doesn't make a fallacious argument into a good argument. Right. Um, and that's the problem of induction. No one knows how to how to justify induction. But we all recognize that we all do it. We were never taught to do this. We all rely on it. And when I say we rely on it, I mean, I don't just mean that we rely on it in the laboratory when we've got our white coats on and we're practicing responsible science. I mean that we rely on it moment to moment. Um, uh, literally all of my actions are predicated on the assumption that the future will resemble the past in relevant respects, which is why you can learn from the past. Right. You, you can generalize into the future based on what has come in, uh, into the past. Anyone who said, well, okay, look, I, I, I will grant that I have no guarantee that induction will continue to work. Anyone who said that would be, would be reasonable. Right? Uh, it's reasonable to say, look, I don't have any guarantee. That's absolutely true. There's no guarantee that the future will resemble the past. There's no reason to think that it won't, but there's no reason to think that it will. Right? But this is what, precisely what makes it an article of faith. If you don't have better reason for thinking that it will than that, that, that it won't, then obviously this is an article of faith for you to live uh, and predicate all of your actions on the assumption that it will resemble the past. Um, and that's why I say that, that this is literally a faith commitment. This comes down to faith. Um, now, you said that you were sort of with me on these properly basic beliefs and that they're unwarranted and arguably unwarrantable, the difficulty then is, well, how do you limit this? I mean, aren't you just handing a license over to, you know, some crackpot theist who believes the most fantastical things based on some ancient writings or um, some revealed um, uh, dogma from from some uh, guru or, you know, I mean, well, we, do, not we don't have count. to wonder. I mean, like Alvin Plantinga has, you know, one of his most significant contributions has been arguing that God is a properly basic belief. Right. Now, actually, this is interesting. I'm glad you, you bring that up, because if anyone has heard the expression properly basic belief before, they probably heard it coming out of the mouth of the um, philosopher and theologian uh, Alvin Plantinga, who argues that, as you said, that God is a properly basic belief. Now, I think what he's identified is a basic belief. God is a basic belief. If you think a God exists and you think something like the Christian God exists, for instance, then that is going to be very fundamental to the rest of your belief set. It's going to be basic in the sense that I outlined at the very beginning of this conversation, um, which is that it's a highly consequential belief. It, it, it is going to inform your sense of a place in the world, the kind of world that you live in, you know, what is the nature of reality, 
Um, what is your place and role in the world? What are your obligations? Who your friends should be? How you ought to vote? The, the, the list is endless. Um, so obviously having a belief in a God like the God of Christianity is basic. It's fundamental to the rest of your belief set. Uh, however, it seems to me that you can abandon that, uh, that belief. Um, you can deny that belief uh, without having to feign uh, any doubt. In the case of, of thinking that you can't trust the evidence of your senses, that you can't even trust your, any of your cognitive faculties to, to reason, when you do that, really, you're just feigning it. You're, you're not, in fact, doubting it. Right? You, that is, you are not filled with any subjective sense of doubt. It, it is a purely intellectual kind of doubt. Right? You realize it's possible that maybe your senses and your cognitive faculties are unreliable. You realize that that is at least logically possible, um, but you don't actually think that it's true. You're not actually, you, you don't actually doubt it. In the case of a God belief, you can actually doubt it. I, for instance, used to believe, and I came to doubt it, and now I don't believe it at all. I have sort of maximal doubt about the existence of God, so to speak. I think that such a God doesn't exist. People can abandon that. There are grounds for revising or rejecting a belief in a God. But in the case of something like induction, we don't have a reason to think that induction is false. We just don't have a good reason for thinking that it's true. We don't have a good reason for thinking that that deduction um, is validity preserving. We don't have uh, a, a reason to think that causes and effects don't exist and that they're just you know, illusions in our mind and stuff like that. We don't, I don't think we have good reasons for, for doubting things like cause and effect or the concept of truth itself. Um, so the grounds for abandoning those beliefs are absent. But in the case of God, that, that is precisely the kind of belief that not only can you have a, a, a genuine doubt, um, but you can revise that belief and abandon it. In fact, millions of people have done exactly that. So Plantinga and I would differ in what we think is a properly basic belief. I think that his, on his system, he has no principled way of distinguishing between a basic belief and a properly basic belief. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked about this at length in the Reformed Epistemology episodes, and his his Reformed foundationalism is built off of a critique of classical foundationalism, which just asserts that a properly basic belief is something that is self-evident or incorrigible, if I remember right. He's arguing that religious believers have a sensus divinitatis. They have some kind of extra sense that you and I don't have <clears throat> or used to have and became damaged by sin. And they're having a direct experience of God. And that is kind of what justifies it. It's sort of on the same level as our belief in an external world or, you know, objects in the external world, like the tree outside my window or the existence of other minds. You know, he's saying belief in God. You know, God is basically just another mind. And because they have this experience of God that, you know, you and I just don't have, that's why it's included in this properly basic belief, um, or in this category of properly basic beliefs. And I think that my more narrow conception of a properly basic belief helps me out with that. But since you said that the existence of other minds and the external world would fall under your uh, definition of properly basic belief. I'm curious how you would, how would you get out of that claiming that God is, you know, he's just another mind. He's like an object in the external world, which you've said you take it on faith that these things exist. So why can't I have faith in the other mind that is God or the external object that is God? Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, well, in the, in the case of, 
of um, the idea of an external world. And all I mean by an external world is a world external to my mind. It's not to assume physicalism, right? So as I said earlier, you could be an idealist and still believe in an external world, right? Um, I, I don't have a way of establishing that the world isn't, in fact, entirely a creation of my mind. I'm not aware that it's a creation of my mind. I don't re recall, for instance, inventing you as a character that, that I'm at, right? Um, but you know, when I go to sleep at night and I dream, if I if if I were dreaming this conversation, when I woke up, I wouldn't think, "Wow, that's astonishing! I dreamt up a whole person and a whole conversation." No, I mean that happens. That's precisely what can happen. You can dream an entire person up. I don't have a way of ruling out that possibility. I just, in fact, assume that you exist, that you have a mind, and that you exist outside my mind. I have a reason for thinking that that you're not a product of my mind. Namely, I don't recall making you up and 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 scripting the words that came out of your mouth and the question that you just asked me, right? Nevertheless, if I were dreaming this, if the, right, and, and I, I, it is, I can, I could have exactly this conversation in a dream, right? What that means is that my mind is capable of generating exactly all of that as a hallucination, right? There's really nothing that can't happen in a dream, right? As far as we can tell. So I find myself in the, in the position of having a reason uh, for thinking that you are external to my mind, but that is in fact a fallacious reason because I have a, 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 a defeater for that belief. Uh, for that justification. Namely, I know I could have dreamt this entire conversation. I have, in fact, dreamt entire conversations. I have dreamt up entire people. I have dreamt up entire countries. I've dreamt up fabulous monsters with, you know, you know, fantastical behaviors and, and characteristics. That's precisely what my, my mind is capable of doing when or it, it's what it's capable of doing when I'm dreaming. And when that happens, I don't think of myself as it's happening as the author of those things. And that's exactly what's going on here. So uh, I don't have a way of vitiating that possibility. Um, and so uh, that's why I think that the, uh, the idea that there is a mind-independent reality is um, unwarrantable. I, just, I, I have independent reasons for thinking that it's precisely what my, my mind could do is generate all of the reality that I perceive around me. That that could just be. I don't think it's true for a moment. Um, and I, I can think of pragmatic uh, motivations why I want to reject that. But I don't have a reason for thinking that it's that that it's true that there's a mind independent reality. My conception of uh, properly basic beliefs is is a little bit more um, restrictive in that I think the only properly basic beliefs are self evident. You know that would be kind of logical truths or mathematical truths, basic mathematical truths, incorrigible as in like facts about the state of your own conscious mind, the one thing that can't be an illusion. And then I also include, you know, some of the things that you mentioned, things like induction, um, the value of reason and evidence. And I, d I don't think I include the existence of other minds or the external world, which kind of helps me out with planning a because I don't claim to to actually know that there is an external world or that there are other minds. Like, I obviously believe that there are, but I recognize the, you know, uncomfortable truth that, that I really could be wrong about these things. And um, I think that's just the state that I'm in, and I have to deal with that fact. You know, I kind of have to deal with the uncertainty. I've, that's part of why I'm resistant to the, the faith move. Well, I, I'm resistant to the faith move for a few reasons. 
Um, one of them is what I just mentioned, which is certainty. It seems to me that one of the things that faith signals is a sort of assurance, like a sort of certainty in what you're claiming to have faith in. You know, you're acknowledging that, well, we actually can't be certain of these things, and that's why you have to have faith. But I'm saying, well, we can't be certain in these things, so why can't we just be uncertain in them? Like, why can't we just sort of leave it at that and try to move forward and live with the uncertainty rather than try to find a way that we can be certain? Because, I mean, wouldn't you agree that some of these things ultimately come down to a matter of probability and we can say this is very likely, this is unlikely, but I can't claim to be certain of any of this? Okay. Uh, I certainly agree that we can't be certain about any of these things. Um, I don't agree that uh, that faith and certainty go hand in hand. There are a lot of people who have strong faith commitments, but don't go so far as saying that they're certain. So for instance, lots of theists out there uh, will uh, insist that they are certain about God's existence. But I mean, there's a huge number of theists out there, perhaps most theists, um, you know, probably not apologists, but, but most theists, you know, if pressed, will tell you, yeah, I believe there's a, there's a God, and I'm extremely confident about it. In fact, I organize my life around it, but I'm not certain of it, right? So they have faith, right? Um, but, um, and they, uh, and they, they might even tell you, look, man, you just got to have faith. They might even uh, grant that they don't have any good reasons for it. Uh, but nevertheless, they don't feel certain. So, um, Well, that's what I'm saying. Faith seems to fill in the gaps. Like when whenever they hit a wall or they're like, well, I, I actually can't justify this. And it's like, well... But you, see, you, you seem it? fairly confident, not just why do you believe it, but you'll hear things like, well, I know that I know that I know that God is real or that, you know, my Ooh, grandma right. is in heaven or whatever. And like, that's kind of what they're getting at is I, my confidence very far outstrips the actual level of evidence I have for this oh, claim. I'm really glad you said that, because that is precisely why I think um, that things like the belief in the existence of a mind-independent reality uh, and other minds and, and so forth are faith commitments. It's precisely because one of the ways that you can be irrational, there's a lot of ways to be irrational. Um, one is to have no justification. Another, though, is just to have you know, really poor justification that does not scale with your confidence. So if you've just got too much confidence in a proposition uh, and not very good reason, or worst of all, no reason, then when there's a mismatch between the quality and quantity of the evidence in favor of a proposition and your commitment to that proposition, uh, then you're being irrational. Another way to be irrational is to is to doubt something when grounds for doubt are are lacking, when you don't have any reasons for, for doubting it either, right? So for instance, a conspiracy theorist uh, typically is someone who uh, doubts the very things that they shouldn't. Very often there are good reasons for, for, for believing something, and yet they engage in some kind of bizarre denialism um, uh, that's usually rather obviously motivated um, and but isn't based in, in any rational process. So you can, just as you can be irrational for believing too strongly on insufficient evidence, you can be irrational for believing um, not strongly enough when you do have sufficient reasons and you're just ignoring those reasons. Right. Now, in the case of something like the belief in the mind-independent reality, um, I, I think you do have a faith commitment here. Uh, you said yourself you don't actually, you, I mean, you, you live as if that's true, right? Well, if you live as if it, it's true, what that means is that by your own lights, you, 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 you act as if it's true in every single moment, uh, but you, you, you will grant, just as a religious person might grant, that you don't have a good reason, 
but you don't have a way of establishing um, that there there's any evidence that warrants your confidence. Your your degree of confidence is extremely high in a proposition like that. Now you might re recognize philosophically, well, listen, I don't have a right to be certain, but nevertheless, you're involved in a kind of performative contradiction. You are living your your life exactly as if um, there's a mind-independent reality in the same same sense that a religious person might live exactly as if there's a God when they know there isn't a good reason to believe in a God. Um, and well, th I, this, I think, is a faith commitment. The thing that bothers me there is I don't really have a choice. Like, I think you would agree I don't have much of a choice there when it comes to a lot of these properly basic beliefs, including the mind-independent reality. Right. I, I don't think we have any choice in any of these. Um, the ones I, I chose uh, to name are ones that I think we really don't have any choice. We, 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 we didn't even, we didn't come to conclude these things. We literally presuppose them from our earliest uh, recollection. So that's why I say no one has to teach you these things. Right. It's precisely because they're either uh, wired in or pickled in somehow um, as part of our animal nature through evolution, uh, which is why a lot of other animals seem to share these elements of our, our worldview and our, our, our uh, presuppositions. Mm -hmm. uh, but at, at no point is it necessary for you to have a faith commitment to affirm that you believe it. it it's, it's, uh, it's more a matter of implicit belief. You implicitly believe all of the things that I listed, I would submit. Even though if I said, well, do you actually believe in other minds? You, you might say, well, yeah, um, clearly on the basis of my behavior, I live every moment. I'm having this conversation with you, Ozzy, on the assumption that you, you've got a mind and I'm asking you these questions to, to probe your mind and, and so forth. And I'm phrasing it in a certain way on the assumption that you'll understand English. And so I'm, I'm ascribing a whole pile of mental content to you, Ozzy, when I talk to you and, and so forth. So, but nevertheless, you can still say, I, I'm not certain about this. But, I mean, a theist could still be guilty of having a faith commitment without affirming that they're certain about God's existence or affirming that they're certain about the truth of the Trinity or something like that. Another thing faith seems to signal to me, in addition to sort of an unwarranted level of confidence, is some sort of choice in the matter, which, you know, maybe we just have a different intuition about that, but it seems like when people claim to have faith in something— there's, it's kind of implied that it that they could not have faith in that thing. Like, that is also an option. So right. when you say, oh, I have faith in this thing and I have no choice, that strikes me as kind of, you know, intention because faith signals you're choosing to believe something, which religious people often say, you know, you're choosing to believe something even though it might not make perfect sense. But if all choices have been eliminated and you have no choice, it seems kind of odd to me to say, you know, well, I have faith in this thing. And also, I would say that my my confidence, it's true that I act as if the external world exists and that other minds exist. And like you said, I really don't have much of a choice in this practically. So my subjective level of confidence, you know, I'm I'm communicating is actually a little more proportional to the evidence where it's like, when it comes to a mind-independent reality, I can't prove there is one, but I also can't prove there isn't. And as far as I can tell, things behave as if my mind is not controlling them. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, so I obviously lean in favor of a mind-independent reality, and, you know, I live like that. You but don't I, but I, don't claim, I don't claim to know that there is certainly a mind-independent reality. And when it comes to, you know, I'm acting as if there is one, you know, I'm kind of, in my action, 
proving that I do believe in a mind-independent reality. Well, yeah, I have no choice. But that's why it seems kind of strange to me to say, you know, I have faith in a mind-independent reality because, you know, like I said, I all of my other options have been eliminated in terms of mm-hmm. action. Okay, I, uh, you said something there that I, uh, I, I think s- um, smuggles in a, uh, a concept that uh, is not really applicable here, and, and that was knowledge. You said, well, I don't claim to know that that there's a mind-independent reality. I don't claim to know that there are other minds or something like that, right? With certainty. But, right, with certainty. But, I mean, you don't have to claim to know it at all, right? The, you can just believe it to be the case, and that, then I think you fall into faith. If you believe it to be the case, and by your own lights, you don't have good reasons for thinking it, right? If you don't, I mean, as I see it, there's no rationality without a rationale, right? There's no reasonableness without a reason. If you don't have a good reason, right, then um, then any degree of confidence that you have, even the slightest, is unwarranted. Right? It's not like you believe in a mind-independent reality and recognize that you don't have good reasons, and so 50% of the time you live as if there isn't a mind-independent reality. The, the, what percentage of the time do you live as if there aren't other minds and there isn't a mind-independent reality? Zero percent of the time. You are fully committed. It doesn't matter if, if um, uh, upon reflection, you realize, hmm, I don't have good reasons, so I can't claim to know with certainty. The, the point is you, 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 you uh, live and act with, with what's called moral certainty. Every one of your actions is predicated on the assumption that these propositions are true. But in the next breath, you, you will say, as I, will, as I would say, as any reflective, reflective person would say, I don't actually have a good reason for believing these things. So if you don't have a good reason, then I don't think you have any reason to believe it. I mean, by hypothesis, if you don't have a reason to believe it, there isn't a reason to think that it's true. Um, but when and, it comes to a mind-independent reality, like... Like I said, you can't prove there isn't one, but you also can't prove that there is one. But you're um, not agnostic about it, are you? No, I like I said, I lean in favor of one. But I don't think you lean in favor. So I interrupted you earlier uh, when you said that. Uh, um, that was the expression I was looking for. You, I don't think you lean in favor of it. Um, you, 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 you live exactly as if it's true. There, you, never do you lean the other way. There's there, there there's nothing that that, that mitigates the the the, the full blooded embracing of this belief. There's no difference in how you conduct yourself and how I conduct myself from someone who actually would say, I fully believe in a mind-independent reality and I'm certain of it and I don't doubt it. There's no difference in how we conduct ourselves. And so there's a performative contradiction here. It would seem that 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 the doubt that you and I have about a mind-independent reality is in a, in a certain sense nominal. We recognize, rationally speaking, I don't have a, uh, any ground uh, for this. And so I know uh, rationally speaking, I, that it, it's, I'm unwarranted in saying that I know it with certainty, but it's much worse than that. I don't have enough reason for thinking that it's even 51% more likely than 50% uh, likely. Like well, what no about, degree what about the fact that it, it appears to behave in law-like manners that, that sometimes you don't even approve of? Well, that happens when you're dreaming, and there, you, by your own admission, um, that's a full-blooded hallucination completely the product of your own mind. You don't need a mind-independent reality to fully hallucinate a mind-independent reality, right? Um, and, I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that sort of fuels um, idealism, right? Um, there's simply no phenomenon out there that, that, you, that um, uh, couldn't be the product of a mind. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So um, well, reality do, might have a mind like nature. And, but do you make any distinction between sort of the way that you're behaving and a subjective sense of certainty? Because that's kind of, I, I recognize that I behave as if the external world exists 100%. You know, I don't mm-hmm. lean in favor of it. But I'm saying subjectively, I, I actually do recognize the possibility that a mind-independent reality might not exist. I mean, like, that actually is a possibility. Yes. Oh, okay. So here we've got degrees of irrationality. If, if, it's, if it's not rationally defensible to say that I believe that there's a mind-independent reality, it's certainly more indefensible to say I know it, and it's still more indefensible to say I know it with certainty. So it's not that there's no degrees here of of uh, of going beyond the uh, what the evidence shows. I think there's no evidence, right? Uh, it's just that pragmatically speaking, it doesn't make any difference, right? There's no difference between a person who said, who like you and I would say, listen, I I I live exactly as if there's a mind independent reality every moment of my life, when I'm asleep and when I'm awake. That's how I live, um, and. And yet I know that there isn't a good reason for, for thinking that. There's no difference in how we conduct ourselves from someone who thinks, I know it to be true. And uh, from a third person who says, not only do I know that to be true, that there's a mind-independent reality, but I'm certain um, in my knowledge, right? That pragmatically, there's no difference. From the outside, no one could tell the difference except that one of us affirms certainty and the other one doesn't. It's purely a linguistic um, or, or nominal uh, distinction to be made here. There is behaviorally no distinction. So to the extent that a, that a, that, that, uh, a belief can be understood as a disposition, the only difference in, in the dispositions is in what you would say about your belief. So you uh, don't it, think there could actually be like a, a subjective difference between the person who is subjectively certain, because we're behaving the same way. Our behavior is indistinguishable, like you said. But yeah. there's one person who is subjectively certain that the mind-independent reality exists, and I would agree that that person has faith. But there's another person who is subjectively not completely certain that the mind-independent reality exists. There's a subjective difference, but those are all articles of faith. They're just different degrees, um, uh, or the, the, um, the, the degree to which they have faith is different. Um, mm. So, I mean, one has, but it's not even degrees of, of it, it's, it's, they have faith in different propositions. I have faith in the proposition there exists a mind-independent reality, and I think you share that, that one. Um, another person, though, might say, I believe the following proposition. I know there is a mind-independent reality. That's not a proposition that I would affirm to be true, mm. right? Um, uh, that, so there's a difference, right? And then there's a third person that says, I know with certainty that there is a mind-independent reality. Those are three different propositions, right? None of them, they are all faith-based. None of them are rationally warrantable, right? Uh, it, it's just that, you know, some um, uh, overstate more than the others um, the epistemological warrant that would be required. So uh, if, you, if, you, if you say, I believe that such and such is true, the amount of warrant necessary uh, to be rational in that belief uh, is less than if you said, I know such and such to be true, and less still if, if you said, I know with certainty that such and such is true. Right? These are three different propositions, right? These are th- sort of three doxastic uh, states. These are three independent beliefs. They're all about the external world, but one is, is about your belief in the external world, one is about your belief that you know, and the other one is about uh, the belief that you know with certainty. Right? So there's three propositions here. 
all three of us, I think, uh, are unwarranted in our beliefs. Um, so it's not that there's no difference in, in, in degree here, because obviously if you say that you believe something, the standard of evidence is lower than if you say you know something to be true, and, and lower than if you said you know it with certainty. So by your, by your lights, you would agree that it's possible to have less faith. You know, of those three people you named, they, have, they all have faith by your lights, but one of them has significantly less faith than the other two? Yeah, I mean, one one is one is uh, is adopting a a burden of justification that is greater than the other two, right? So that you've got three, okay, and one each one adopts a a burden of justification that they cannot discharge, but some have a greater burden of justification than than the others. I mean, if I say there's a car in my garage, there's a certain burden of justification there. If I say the Batmobile. Um, is in my garage, there's a different burden of justification. It's not enough that there's a car in my garage. It has to be a very specific car that's in my garage, right? And so that's a higher burden of justification to discharge that belief. Um, and, th- and that's what's going on here. So they're, they're, these are different propositions, and they, have, they, uh, they, um, they uh, incur different burdens of justification um, for those because they have different propositions, right? But in no case is one better warranted than the other. They're all unwarranted. There's no evidence for any of those uh, propositions. So, I mean, obviously you you want to scale back your confidence. So the person that's got more confidence is making a bigger mistake. But practically speaking, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference because we we all live exactly the same way. And so the difference is just Nominal. There is a subjective difference, but but there's no pragmatic difference in how we live. We are all sort of involved in a, uh, as I see it, uh, in a faith commitment. So it's it, you're not involved in a faith commitment only if you say you know or you know with certainty. If I believe something to be true, and I say yeah, I think it's 51% to 49%, a slightly more likely that such and such is true. But if I have no evidence for that, if I have nothing to warrant even that 1% confidence then that's an irrational belief. And if I have literally no reason, that's a faith commitment. Mm-hmm. I don't have to claim to know it. It's, if, my, if my subjective probability assessment is unwarranted, and yet I believe in that probability assessment, where whatever I assess the probability to be, 1% to 100%, it doesn't matter what, what percentage it is, if I don't have a reason for thinking it that is rational, then I don't have a reason for thinking that it's true. And that makes it a faith commitment. So maybe... By your lights, I'm setting the bar on faith a little low, right? Maybe um, uh, by your lights, I have too inclusive a, a, a notion of faith. But as I see it, um, uh, faith is simply when you believe something to a certain degree on insufficient evidence, whatever degree that is. It can be high confidence or low confidence. The point is, if the if the reasons um, uh, uh, don't scale, are not commensurate, with the degree of confidence that you have, you are um, uh, engaged in, in rationality. And if there's no reason at all, it doesn't matter what the, what the belief is, and it doesn't uh, matter how much confidence you have in the truth of the proposition. If there's no reason at all, that's a blind faith commitment. And so I think that at the very core of rationality itself are blind faith commitments. Right. The, val- but, the value of reason, the value of evidence, and so on. Right, but here's where I think there is a break because I think that what 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 is concerning you here and what concerns a lot of people reasonably is granting a license for, for to people who want to believe any old damn thing on insufficient evidence. 
the faith commitments that I have described, these properly basic beliefs that I have described, these are the very properly basic, these are the very beliefs which, if you hold them, allow you to say, wait a minute, I can't believe any old damn thing. It is precisely the belief in these ones that I have been talking about that constrain reason, that, that make reason possible. They, they are what undergirds reason. You can think of them, if you want, as assumptions that are pre-rational. They are, they are permissive conditions for rationality to, to, to be operative at all. And it, it's on the basis of rationality, once it's up and running, within the scope of these assumptions, once it's up and running, then you can, you can, re, you can realize this God belief doesn't make any sense. You could completely doubt this. In fact, there are reasons for doubting it. Um, Scientology, uh, Holocaust denial, and all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things that you can now scrutinize and apply reason to once you have made certain assumptions. But, but rationality isn't up and running on its own. You first have to get the machinery of reason running, and that entails making certain assumptions. And those assumptions are, are assumptions about the validity-preserving character of uh, of deduction, the, the belief in the concept of, of truth, some notion of correspondence, um, the, the notion of cause and effect, the notion that you can trust your senses. All of these are the assumptions that make science possible, that make it possible to experiment and learn from experience, to trust in your senses and your memory. That's part of the, these, this is the, 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 the presumptive groundwork of, of scientific induction and scientific experimentation. Our commitment to to, to rationality, um, critical thinking, skepticism, and embracing of scientific values assumes all of these things as properly basic. I, I completely agree. Like, I think that this is a point of agreement we have that a lot of other atheists maybe would not sign on to. We agree that we have properly basic beliefs and that they are roughly what you just described. And, you know, I, I'm fully on board with everything that you just said. And then I step off at the very last stop of saying, therefore, these things are taken out of faith. And I think, like, let me describe um, my conception of properly basic beliefs a little bit to explain that, which sure. is that I, I don't think I have faith in properly basic beliefs. Like, I think that properly basic beliefs are those that really all I'm claiming to know is that which I can't doubt. I'm just, you know, incorrigible truths about the state of my own conscious mind, things that are self-evident like, you know, A equals A, basic logical truths like that. And I would include maybe a handful of other things that you described there about, you know, induction or, or the usefulness of reason or the value of reason, the value of evidence. And those are, that's, you know, it's a fairly narrow set of properly basic beliefs. I don't think that I have faith in those things. Like, I think that, you know, a properly basic belief, it's, it's where the chain of justification ends. There's nothing underneath it. Like, there's no further justification for this thing that we're calling a properly basic belief. And I agree with you that not only is there, there's no thing that you could say to support them. Like, you've reached the end. Like, this is where it bottoms out in. I just, I wouldn't characterize that as, as faith. So my question for you is, is faith the only way to characterize something that's, let's call it non-rational? Because it's not irrational, exactly. Like you said, you can't really mount rational reasons to, you know, support the value of reason itself without begging the question. So, yeah, my question is just, that's the big disconnect, I think, is that do properly basic beliefs equal taking it on faith? Is there any yeah. other way to characterize 
a properly basic belief or some kind of, you know, non-rational activity we're involved in other than taking it on faith? Yeah, um, not in my view. Uh, and, it, and it's because, in my view, if you don't have a reason, then any degree of confidence that you have is going to be unwarranted. And, an un, and, a, and a fully unwarranted belief is deserving of only one word, faith, and the worst kind, blind faith. You know, not, not a warranted confidence or anything like that, because by hypothesis, if you don't have a warrant for the belief, then you don't have a warrant for thinking that it's true. Uh, and you, should, you ought not think it's true. That doesn't mean you ought to think it false, because you'd need a reason to think it was false, too. So you really ought to be just purely agnostic. Um, so I, the reason I think that, that this is deserving of, of the term faith is because faith doesn't mean irrational. Faith just means that you think that um, uh, uh, something is true and you don't have a reason for it. That's all I mean by faith, right? You, that you, you think that, that something is true to whatever degree and you don't have sufficient reason for, for thinking that it's true. It doesn't have to be irrational in the sense that you're violating some norm. So for instance, if I say, you know what, um, concept of causation, uh, maybe that's not a real feature of the world. I can doubt that. I can entertain a doubt about that. I could sort of take some kind of Kantian line and say that maybe that this is a conceptual category. This is just how my mind works and that I am posing, I'm imposing the notion of causality of cause and effect onto the world. I read that into the world, but in fact, there's nothing there um, that answers to to cause and effect. I mean, this is this is actually a psychological view um, that, has, that has been seriously put forward. I mean, in some some in some cases, you can entertain a real doubt about uh, these things. Um, but nevertheless, I am not on the fence about this. I I live exactly as if it it was true. And I don't, in fact, doubt it. Now, if I don't doubt it, if I believe it to be true and I don't doubt it, the fact that I'm unwilling to say I'm certain about it or that I know it doesn't seem to mitigate it, in my view, the fact that I don't have a justification for thinking that it's true in even the smallest degree. So, I mean, if I had some reason for thinking that it was more likely to be true than not, then I think, it, look, I mean, I might be irrational in that I might be believing it too strongly when I shouldn't believe it quite so strongly, but at least it's not blind faith. I've got some reason. But in each of these cases, I think I have no good reason. What I just, what I have is an instinct. This is just how my mind works. This is just part of the, of the uh, Darwin, Darwinian evolutionary uh, inheritance that we have, uh, which is why so many other organisms uh, have um, uh, similar presumptions that are manifest in their animal behavior. Uh, my dog, I mean, I don't think my dog does induction consciously, uh, but my dog clearly learns according in a, in a way that is consistent with induction. It, it learns from experience. It generalizes on the basis of prior experiences about what's going to happen in the future. That's how you can train your dog. It, it, it's how all animal learning seems to happen. Uh, so, in my view, I think that faith is the right word simply because what I mean by faith is believing something not just on insufficient evidence, but on no evidence. That's what I mean. I, the, 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 my usage of the word faith here refers to blind faith. And so I, I think that blind faith is what's operative here. But be, once you believe certain things on blind faith, namely the ones that I, I list as properly basic, once you believe those propositions on blind faith, now you are armed with the the the, the the full arsenal of what we call rationality, critical thinking, 
the scientific values that make it possible to sift everything else in our belief set to see if it's reasonable and defensible. Um, and so th that's how I see it. Well, I would be more, I think I would rather call it non-rational than on faith or just simply call it, well, I, these are properly basic beliefs. And the reason for that is in part for what I've been saying, like it, it's maybe it's just I have different connotations with the word faith or I've heard it used differently, but it does seem to imply that there is a choice to not have faith if you're saying that you have faith in something, which yeah. we, we agree that it, you know, when it comes to these properly basic beliefs, there really is no choice. Yeah, well, with respect to, to choice, uh, there's two senses of choice here. Um, choice in the sense of like a, a, a free libertarian choice, I, I don't think uh, exists. I don't, yeah, I don't believe that we choose our beliefs. So, yeah, I think you would agree. With, you, you reject um, uh, doxastic voluntarism that we choose our beliefs. So I don't think mm -hmm. we choose our beliefs. We don't, I don't think we choose any of our beliefs, um, and certainly not properly basic ones. But, but what you mean here by choice is that there's no alternative. There's just psychologically there's no alternative. But I, I don't even know that that's true. I mean, I think it is possible for a person, in principle, to, in fact, doubt these things. I, I think that there are people out there with deranged minds, um, uh, people who, whose uh, uh, cognitive architecture has gotten messed up. Perhaps they're mad, or perhaps it's a temporary um, effect of um, taking um, a hallucinogen or something like that, where these assumptions are rendered um, uh, inoperative. They're just they're, they're just offline, and then all of a sudden they start behaving. These people start behaving in very very weird ways. I think it is possible, psychologically possible, for a person to not believe these things. So there is an option. It it, it does exist, uh, but it's just that whenever it, it manifests itself, we think that that person has has taken leave of their senses. That's part of what we mean. Um, when we say that a person has gone mad and taken leave of their senses, is that precisely they're not believing the properly basic uh, things that that any rational person would believe. Um, right. I think my conception of, of what counts as properly basic is slightly narrower than yours, though. So I think that, but, you know, as I'm speaking, I'm remembering that there are actually, like, eliminativist materialists who doubt that they actually even are conscious so right. I, I suppose you can doubt some of the things that I think are properly basic, but that's maybe a few hundred people in the world and possibly in the history of humankind. But most people, yeah, most people wouldn't wouldn't doubt um, what I'm talking about. But I guess a lot of what this comes down to is how do you feel about chains of justification and what happens when they come to an end? Because that's, as far as I can tell, is what we're actually talking about. Yeah. Like, uh, there's a chain of justification, it comes to an end, and now what? Like, what happens when we reach that end? Do we say, oh, well, actually, it's not justified because it's it hasn't been justified by something outside of itself, you know, which is kind of the principle that most people implicitly accept without realizing it, you know, w without realizing that that would lead to an infinite regress and that that can't, you, that's an untenable principle to hold. And, right. or maybe when we reach, when we reach the end, we could say, well, I have faith in this thing that reaches the end. Or could we maybe call it something else like, well, this is just a properly basic belief and that's that because when we reach an end of a chain of justification, we're not looking for something outside of this final ultimate thing. And that's kind of why I don't want to say we, I don't want to say we have faith in it because it seems to be resisting the idea that chains must come to an end and that that's okay. Yeah, uh, I think chains do come to an end and it sucks. 
Um, <laughs> um, chains of reasoning come to an end, and where do they, they they ground out in these things that we've been talking about, these properly basic beliefs. But and and I think that is just because the universe um, doesn't owe us a justification for how our minds work and what constitutes justification. Justification, in my view, first of all, isn't even an ingredient in knowledge. So I, you know, there's this classic definition of knowledge that dates back to Plato that a lot of people uh, favor, uh, that knowledge is justified true belief. So in order to know something, you have to have a belief and the belief has to be true and you have to have a justification that somehow connects the truth to the belief. So that's the JTB, the Justified True Belief Account or Definition of Knowledge. That's a definition of knowledge that I reject. I, I favor something known as reliableism. I, I think that knowledge consists of a reliably produced true belief, a belief. So you have to have a belief. It has to be true. But the belief itself, the true belief has to be reliably produced. It has to be the result of a reliable belief-forming mechanism. That's all that I think natural selection has selected for. Natural selection can't see the truth of our beliefs, right? It can't select uh, true beliefs directly. Uh, what, but what it can do is select a mechanism like vision, like memory, like inference, and so forth, right? These, these I think, are reliably, uh, um, reliable mechanisms of belief formation. They're not always working. Sometimes they're... they're they fail us, um, uh, but under most ordinary circumstances, your memory is generally reliable, your vision is generally reliable, your inferential pro uh, processes and other cognitive faculties are generally reliable. That's what natural selection owes us. It doesn't guarantee us any, any truth in it, and it doesn't owe us certainty. And so we don't have minds capable of that. And so we find ourselves with the kinds of minds that allow us to get by in the world um, and generate uh, 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 beliefs that are generally reliable uh, using these reliable uh, belief-forming mechanisms that we have. This is just the cognitive architecture that we have. But, there, but that, that machinery is necessary for us to get by in the world and get on with the business of finding a mate, finding food, uh, fight or flight, and on all of those things, the four Fs. But it's not that that machinery doesn't exist for the purposes of examining itself and uh, providing some kind of self-guarantee that the whole mechanism uh, generates true beliefs. That's, that is surplus to requirements. The evolution doesn't owe us that. The universe doesn't owe us that. And so we don't have a mind that can ensure that. And so our very concept of justification is a pragmatic thing, right? Justification, in my view, is important in epistemology, but it's not an ingredient in knowledge. Justification has a pragmatic value. What's the, the value of justification? Well, for instance, when I look at something, right, so if there's, I mean, I'm staring at, uh, at a coffee mug in front of me right now, okay, what happens is th there is a causal story to be told about how um, the physical object um, reflects light, ends up in my eye, stimulates my cones and rods, uh, my visual cortex does a bunch of stuff, um, uh, it triggers a, a cascade of, of uh, neural events in other parts of my, my brain, uh, including um, parts of my memory, and I recognize this to be a coffee mug, all right? There's a causal story to be told here, right? So I formed the belief that there's a coffee mug in front of me, right? There's a reliable belief-forming mechanism that produced that. If there is a reliable belief-forming mechanism that produced that, if my, my eyes and my brain um, are, are working 
properly, then I know what I think I know. Right? What I can't do, though, is demonstrate that the, that the system is reliable, not without assuming the reliability of the system. I mean, how am I going to test the general reliability of my cognitive faculties? What the heck am I going to use but my cognitive faculties? So justification can't justify itself, right? Mm -hmm. So what is the point of justification? The point of justification is this. You ask me, Ozzy, are you sure you're looking at a coffee mug, right? Because you can't see me right now and you can't see the coffee mug because we're talking over an internet connection. And I can say, yeah, yeah, here. And I can hold it up and I can tap it. I don't know if you can hear that, right? Um, and um, I, I can I can describe it to you. I can I can tap it. You can hear me drinking. I can turn on the camera, and then you can see me drinking from it, and and so forth, right? The point of justification is pragmatic. It's so that I can supply to you a reconstruction of the reliable belief forming processes. I'm gonna if, when I when I tell you what my justification is, what am I doing? I'm telling you. All I'm describing is is I, I say, well, I I can see it. I can see the mug. I can touch it. I can feel it. I can drink out of it. I'm appealing to my belief forming processes, right? That's all I'm doing when I'm giving a, a justification. I, I, this is not a guarantee of the veracity. All I'm doing is telling you a causal story. I can see it with my own eyes. I heard it. I read it in a book or, or whatever. Justification is pragmatic. It's about providing you who want to know why I believe what I do with the, to the degree of confidence that I hope that I believe it with the causal story. And if you consider what what goes on when people offer, when they volunteer justifications or when they demand a justification from another person, invariably what they're asking for is a reconstruction of the reliable belief-forming mechanisms. We assume that those mechanisms are in place and, and then we say, okay, what reliable belief-forming processes did you uh, use to arrive at the answer to that math problem? Or uh, the belief that democracy is better than some other form of government or that the capital of, of Malaysia is Kuala Lumpur or, or whatever, right? I, I want to hear uh, not an endless uh, chain of justifications. I want to hear the causal story. How did you causally, how, did, how was that belief produced in you? And if it was produced uh, through reliable means, then you will go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. If you have reason to question the reliability of my senses or the testimony or my cognitive faculties or, or anything like that, then the justification is not going to go. So justification, I think, serves only two functions. One, for pragmatic purposes of satisfying conditions of pu public assertability. If I say I believe something is true, you have a right to say, well, why on earth, Ozzy, do you think that that's true? And what am I going to give you as a justification? I'm going to tell you the story about how that belief was caused by the state of affairs as mediated through the reliably uh, produced mechanisms that I think are operative. The only other uh, um, value of justification is that I can do that to myself. I don't need you in the room. I can consider, why do I believe there's a mug here? And I can consider that. I can evaluate that. Why do I believe that Kuala Lumpur is the capital of Malaysia? And I can say, well, let me consider the reason. Well, I had a girlfriend who was from Malaysia, and uh, she told me that that's the capital. And that really is the reason why I believe it. Uh, it's not the best justification. And, and, and I can go, well, that's not the best justification. Maybe she was pulling my leg, or maybe she was mistaken, right? So now I have some reason. It's not an art total blind faith, right? I have some reason. It's just not a very good reason. Being able to, to reconstruct the process by which I arrived at my beliefs, think of your beliefs as outputs, right? And, and reconstruct the, the causal pathway between the alleged fact and the belief in that fact. That allows me 
to scale my confidence up and down. And so justification, I think, is not part of the definition of knowledge, but it has pragmatic virtues, both socially, interpersonally, and subjectively to the individual, because it allows you to reassess um, your confidence up and down on the basis of the, uh, the reconstruction that you offer. I think I'm with you on all that. And certainly that reconstruction is going to involve, you know, evidence and reason along the way. And I could continue to just ask you, you know, over and over again, well, you know, why do you think that? Well, why do you think that? And eventually we could reach the end of this chain where I say, well, you know, you're using evidence. You know, why would you use evidence? Like what's the, you're using reason in the course of this reconstruction. Why should you trust reason? And that's sort of what I'm talking about at, at the end of this chain of justification, where I think that's where you say, well, I have faith in reason. And I, right. I would say I don't think that's necessary to say if you say, when, when we come to the end of that chain of justification and you say, well, why would you, why would you trust reason or why would you trust evidence? Like, I think that that is the end of the chain. And if you ask, well, what's beyond that? then you've simply misunderstood that we're at the end of the chain. And the impulse to give some justification beyond that is some kind of, you know, resistance to the idea that chains come to an end, where it just, that's the nature of a properly basic belief. There's nothing underneath it. There's nothing that you even could say to support it. It's, that's the end. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. Um, Wittgenstein had a a famous line on this. He says that, you know, when someone asks you for your reasons and and justification, you you basically, it's like digging. You're just digging and you say, okay, here, let me give you another reason. You just keep digging this hole. And then at some point he says, my spade is turned. I hit bedrock. That bedrock are are the properly basic beliefs. And and, And that's why most of the time we don't run into this problem, right? You ask a person for justification, they give you their reasons. They either satisfy you or they don't. If they don't, you might ask for further reasons, and that can entail uh, more questions about the reasons. Um, right. When they ask you and, about the capital of Malaysia, they don't say, what's the value of evidence? <laughs> right, exactly. But, I mean, in principle, you can keep asking, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And then you get down to what I think is the bedrock, these properly basic beliefs. And there, my spade is turned. I have hit bedrock, and I can say nothing more than, this is just what justification consists of. Exactly. It, it, but that's, it that's doesn't a... consist in anything more. Now, the, but the problem is this. We have this, um, this notion that a, that a belief is only reasonable if you have reasons. It's only rational if there's some rationale. I think that that's a, a useful maxim, and I don't think that we need to suspend it in this case. We just need to recognize the limits of our epistemology. We have to sort of um, have a little uh, humility here and not say that our properly basic beliefs are all indubitable. They're not indubitable. You can doubt them. They're, uh, they're not inerrant, right? Um, they, they, they could be mistaken, right? What they are is irrevisable. I don't have any grounds for correcting them or revising them. I don't have a reason to believe them, and I don't have a re- reason to reject them either, right? All you can say is, this is just what we do. This is what is meant by justification. If, you, if you're asking for more than this, I don't know what you're asking for. Right. It's like you're confused about what we're talking about if you're asking for another reason. Like P.F. Strawson gave this example. I think he was actually trying to solve the problem of induction, but it also applies to, to what we're talking about now, where... He said, imagine you were wondering if something was legal. So then you consult some law books about whether or not it's legal. And then it turns out it is. 
and then you wonder, but is this law legal? And it's like you right. you've no, you've that's not a sensible question. Like this law is the standard by which we judge whether or not something is legal. To ask is the law legal doesn't really make any sense. You've reached bedrock. Like that's where right. we are. This is the thing that we use to decide whether or not things are legal. And if you're asking, um, you know, you get to the end of the chain and you say, well, is reason reasonable? And it's like, well, that question doesn't even make sense. We've reached the end of the chain and we've hit bedrock and we simply don't have to say anything else. You know, I don't see any reason to add faith to this discussion is what I'm saying. Like we, we can, yeah. we've hit bedrock, you know, it's non-rational. It's, there's nothing we even could say to support it. Why do we have to bring faith into the mix Especially when we know, I mean, I don't want to change the subject, but we know how it's going to be taken and how it's going to be used against us as soon as we say, oh, yeah, I have faith. Yeah, well, here you've marshaled a really good uh, argument against my, my brief here. So what, what you're arguing here is you're saying, look, if this is just what we mean by the giving of reasons and justification, that it's simply perverse. You're, you're, uh, it's worse than perverse. I mean, it, it, it borders on the nonsensical to keep asking for justification. And the analogy... Right, and, and analogy faith is that justification in this case. Right. Exactly. So what you could what you could argue from your standpoint uh, against my, my position is, uh, uh, look, Ozzy, um, uh, if we're going to keep the word faith uh, at all, it's because it's, it, it's under the assumption that justification means what we think it means. Um, and within the scope of, of, the, of these assumptions of properly basic belief that make justification itself possible, that make the, the notion of evidence and reason giving possible, right, then it doesn't make sense to uh, apply uh, faith to this because the notion of faith is itself parasitic or it's not parasitic, but I mean, it, it falls out of, uh, of uh, our commitments to these properly basic beliefs. When we say that something is faith, what we mean is assuming what we mean by evidence and reason giving uh, and justification, faith is when a person completely fails at all of that, right? In all these other contexts, right? But we can't apply justification and reason giving to these very um, beliefs themselves. That, that's the argument you could make, that the concept of, of, of evidence and reason-giving and justification and believing things on insufficient evidence and irrationality and blind faith only makes sense within the scope of these properly basic beliefs. And you can't, you, just as you can't ask for reasons for rationality, so you can't, you can't um, say that a, uh, a person is acting on faith um, either when they're talking about these properly basic beliefs, right? In fact, I have made a, uh, a, uh, some, some noises in, the, in this direction myself when I have said, I don't know that it makes sense to say that, that, the, that a person who is committed to these, um, these articles of faith as I see them is being irrational, um, it, because it seems to me that all of this is pre-rational. All of these beliefs are pre-rational, Right? They're, if anything, they're, they're irrational. They're not irrational you're not, because you're not violating any norms when you believe these things. Right? You're only violating these norms when you try to justify them. Right? That's when you end up in, in, in circularity. Yeah, so, that's why I opted I, for non-rational at that point. Right, yeah. So I used to uh, say that they're pre-rational. I'm a little uncomfortable with that uh, because I, I, it feels to me a little bit like I'm, I'm making exceptions here, that, uh, that I'm engaged in special pleading. And I have not. I don't have a settled opinion on whether or not I'm engaged in special pleading when I characterize it this way. Um, 
so uh, I, this is something I need to think about more. But um, it, it's in it's in that way that I can I can see that that um, calling these um, faith based or articles of faith might be in, um, somehow inapplicable, just like demanding justification for the properly basic beliefs might might be. Uh, inapplicable. But strictly speaking, I don't think it's inapplicable to ask for justification for our bottom assumptions. I think it's perfectly legitimate to say, well, wait a minute, how do you justify induction? Wait a minute, how do you justify the validity preserving character of deduction? How do you, um, how do you um, generate uh, the confidence that you have, rationally speaking, for um, uh, any of your cognitive faculties, such as perception and memory? I don't think that, that anyone is violating any, any epistemic norms or, or pulling a fast one when they ask that. That is a legitimate question. It's just that the answer is, well, we don't have a good reason. And so I think it's a legitimate question. I don't think that these... See, Wittgenstein thought these, these questions were nonsense. He thought, look, all of this, trying to do epistemology on epistemology is nonsense, that this is linguistic confusion. This is... People are, are, are bewitched by, by, by language, and you simply should not ask for justification about the concept of justification. Um, uh, it's not recursive that way. That's not the reason for which justification exists uh, or arose in our language and, and, and exists in our... Uh, our in our um, in our discourse in the first place, it has pragmatic functions, and when you try to turn it on itself, as he says, language is, has just been taken on holiday. You're applying a concept where it has no applicability. But I, it seems to me um, these epistemological questions are not domain specific. They can be applied to any any uh, any claim about reality. And these properly basic beliefs strike me as claims about reality. They are ontological commitments. They are um, claims about ourselves and our nature. They are they are axiological claims or epistemological claims, especially. Uh, and it seems to me that there's no reason to say asking these questions is off limits. In fact, it seems to me the questions are legitimate, and there is an answer. And the answer is we don't have any good reasons. And and it seems to me that when a person has no good reasons, the only word in our vocabulary that really captures that is blind faith. And that's why I, I, I go with that. But I, I do take your point. I think that, that there is a principled argument that could be marshaled that, that, that says, hmm, wait a minute, faith might not be the right word here. Faith might be a word that only applies within the scope of these assumptions, just like the concept of rationality only applies within the scope of these assumptions. And it doesn't make sense to say of these assumptions that they are rational or irrational. They are, as I have said in some of my moods, pre-rational, or as you said, non-rational. So that, I, I could have my mind changed on that. Well, it's not just that faith would be the wrong justification to invoke at that point. It's just that any justification would be the wrong one to invoke at that point, because we've reached the end of, of why, essentially. Oh, wait, let me, let me, let me um, correct something here. Um, when, when, I, when I say that faith is the right word, I, I, I mean that it's the right description of what's going on. It's, I don't think for a moment that faith is a justification. I think faith is never a justification. Um, uh, I rather like it when, when, when theists will say that they have a justification for their belief and you, you're having an argument with them and maybe you, you, know, you, you, you divest their arguments and then they, and they come down to, look, man, you just got to have faith. I mean, that, they're not being disingenuous in that moment. I think that's a, they're, they're at their most, <laughs> they're most honest there. They're, they're saying, look, like, it's just imperative that you, you, that you have faith. Faith is the only way you're going to get to this conclusion. 
right? You have a moral duty, you, you, and, and epistemologically, there's no other way. They think faith is an epistemology. They think faith is a kind of reason. It is a reason-giving um, consideration uh, for believing, right? I don't think faith uh, is that. I think faith is always an admission of just, you know, you're, you're, like you're saying uncle. You're throwing your hands up and saying uncle, uncle, I just faith. Right. Um, and uh, they don't see it that way very often. Some of them do, and so they want to avoid that, and they will insist that faith is confidence. It's anything but blind faith, right? Uh, but I think faith can, is, uh, can be absolutely blind. And and when I say, listen, when it comes to these properly basic beliefs, all you can do up is throw your hands up and say, uncle, faith. But when you believe these ones, it is possible to rule out other things as irrational. Well, I agree that the, the function of faith is essentially when you reach you know, it's sort of a matter of personal incredulity, which I only say because I've met, I've also met believers where there are things that, that can be justified, and then they just say, well, you just got to have faith. And it's like, well, you don't have to have faith just yet. <laughs> like, you can, uh, <laughs> like, but they just don't know, you know, like, they invoke faith personally because they personally don't know how to handle, you know, a certain question or something. And then they invoke faith because they're like, I don't know how to answer that. So you, you just got to have faith. Whereas like maybe another believer could answer that, which is, that's another reason I don't like faith is, is for the reason you described it is just giving up. It feels like, it feels like, well, we'll never have an answer to this. So, you know, that's sort of the, the function of faith. And as much as I don't agree with some of the people who've tried to solve induction, I still have to admire their trying, I guess. And well, sorry, just to back up a second, the, the justification point, I feel like faith kind of is a justification in the way that you're using it, where it says, well, why, why are you allowed to have this properly basic belief? And then you say faith. So isn't that kind of a justification in the broadest sense? I know it doesn't include reason. So if yeah. you define justification as something that involves reason, then it's not a justification. But when someone asks, why are you allowed to use induction or and so on, the examples we've been giving, then you would say faith in response to that, right? Yes, but I don't think, but I don't, I'm not using faith as a justification. Right. So if, if, if some, as a descriptor, faith, I think, is the word that best describes why I trust in induction. I, I mean, if there is a reason, and I certainly commend philosophers who try to solve the problem of induction. I mean, if I was smart enough to do it, I would, I would do it. And I, you know, honestly, <laughs> in my uh, aspiration to be a philosopher when I was in, in university, uh, I certainly wrestled with the problem of induction and hoped that I would be the one that would come up with the solution. <laughs> I have since despaired. Um, <laughs> But um, when I say that th this is faith uh, that's operative here, what I mean is that's purely descriptively. This is not an epistemological claim, right? I just think we believe this on no evidence, not not insufficient evidence. We just believe this on no evidence. There isn't an argument at all to be to be had. I think the only word that, that describes that, and certainly the word that best describes that, I would I would submit is faith. But that is. But if someone says, well, but Ozzy. How does that justify your belief in all of this? I, 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 listen, I just, I just threw up my arms and said, "Uncle, I just said there wasn't a justification." Right. You don't accuse me of justifying it. <laughs> I'm not justifying it. My, my position is precisely there isn't a justification for right. these things. It's where the uh, sidewalk ends, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, this is where my spade is turned, as Wittgenstein would say. Yeah, uh, one of the things, one analogy that I, I have offered in the past that, I, that sometimes helps people with this is this: think of these properly basic beliefs as the the underpinnings, the things, the the the, the commitments that you 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 have to have 
in order for rationality to be up and running. Think of, of, of this as a ladder. What is a ladder for? A ladder is what you climb so that you can reach other things that are up on the higher shelves. You don't step on the ladder to reach the ladder. Once you're on the ladder, you can reach other things. And that's what, what, what these assumptions do. They enable scientific values and critical thinking and skepticism. Everything that we think of having to do with skepticism and critical thinking and, and um, uh, scientific values and reason and logic, all of that is made up of these properly basic beliefs. That's the ladder on which we stand so that we can do science and we can exercise critical thinking and be skeptical. But the problem is that ladder isn't, does not exist to reach itself and justify itself. You, you have to step on the ladder, and once you're on the ladder, you can reach all these other things, and now you can do some debunking, and now you can provide evidence in support of the theory, and you can do hypothesis testing and fact-checking and all of that. But you have to be on the ladder first. But you don't climb the ladder that you're on to reach the ladder that you're on. Climb the ladders to reach other beliefs and test other beliefs for veracity and, and uh, reasonableness and rationality. But you have to be on the ladder first. And I've been saving this last one for the end because in a sense it's just a different game than what we've been engaging in thus far the the last reason i don't like faith is just purely for tactical reasons when i was talking to ben watkins from relay theology i said um something about propaganda purposes and people didn't like that very much so <laughs> yeah, i remember that i'll say yeah. <laughs> i'll say tactical concerns um, which, by the way, the, the propaganda thing, I just meant that in like a public relations sense. Sure. Which, yeah. you know, public relations and propaganda are the same thing. Literally, the propaganda industry rebranded itself in a very propagandistic move. They called, they changed their name to the public relations industry because right. for some strange reason, there is some negative connotations forming around the, the word propaganda. But I, I just meant purely in a public relations sense. And that's also why, or one big reason I don't like the concept of faith, because I recognize how it's going to be used. Like, I know that if I say I have faith in something, that there are a lot of people who maybe are not even being deceptive, who are going to say, well, you have faith in induction, and I have faith in God, so I guess we'll just shake our hands and go our separate ways. We both have faith. And they're wrong. And, you know, you've been explaining at length why that's why that's not a valid move, but... I mean, just why would we even walk into that if we don't absolutely have to? I don't think we absolutely have to, so I don't want to. And I have to admit that I also have a personal dog in the fight because really the first major blow to religion, at least subjectively for me, was literally just questioning faith. Like I, faith as a justification, which is something that you would stand by uh, criticizing, which is mm -hmm. that why would you claim to know something based on faith? It's not based on experience. It's not based on reason. Why would you say, oh, I know this because of faith? And just challenging the notion of faith in that epistemological sense, that was, you know, when a sort of, that, it felt like a dam broke when that thought crossed my mind. I can even remember where I was sitting, actually, when that occurred to me. Yeah, so I mean, just knowing that the criticism of faith can have that effect on people and that it, it can sort of be an in for a criticism of religious epistemology generally, because it's a pretty easy case to make to say you shouldn't believe something based on faith. Like, even religious people, implicit, like, uh, yeah. Frank Turek uh, has this book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and it's like, hang on, Frank, are we agreeing that faith is stupid? Like, are we, are we agreeing <laughs> that faith is bad? Because it seems like I can translate this title to, you know, atheists are so dumb they have even more faith than I do. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, look at the bad epistemology they use. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, quite a concession. Um, I've heard Chris Hedges uh, make uh, similar noises about about faith and uh, you know how he doesn't have enough faith to be an atheist and yeah. that sort of thing. Okay, so you know why should we use this uh, word just from a, a, a PR or propaganda reasons? Um, yeah, PR, not propaganda. It's totally <laughs> <laughs> that's right. There we go. Russell conjunctions again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Uh, the the reason is this. Uh, it has to do with bad epistemology. Um, the movement atheism suffers from a problem. So by movement atheism, I mean people who agitate for atheism, people who are sort of lobbying and, and actively trying to, to um, uh, divest people of their religious ideas, people who are trying, as, as I try to do, to divest um, the, the, the discourse of, of, of faith uh, from our culture so that it, it loses uh, all of the privilege that it has. It just enjoys it too much. I mean, I just I can't stand the discourse of faith. It just seems you know, preposterous that we make exceptions um, for people be, believing all kinds of uh, ridiculous things, and they get away with it by just handing out this card saying, "Oh yeah, I, I believe it on faith," right? Mm-hmm. And everyone's supposed to respect it. Right? Um, so anyone who's sort of in, involved in that project is part of movement atheism. But if movement atheism is going to be worth anything, it's got to be because it's committed to something better. It's not enough to just be critical of religion. What I what I want to see in movement atheism is a move in the direction of skepticism and critical thinking and embracing of scientific values. If people have a very naive epistemology, though, and they think that none of their beliefs issue um, from presuppositions that are unexamined and undefended and maybe indefensible, right? unwarranted and unwarrantable, then we have a problem. So, I mean, there are people in uh, movement atheism, people, well, you mentioned Matt Delahunty. I think he's not quite so guilty of this, but he, he sometimes makes moves in this direction. But someone like Aaron Ra, for instance, uh, will say that he doesn't have faith in anything. Uh, he believes that he has reasons, rational reasons for everything. He rejects the problem of induction. I, I think I would argue he doesn't really understand the problem of induction. And I don't want to sort of dish too much on Aaron Ra, but I'm using him as a as an example that of someone in movement atheism who right. most listeners would recognize, whose name would recognize, and whose style of, of, of argument uh, and objection to religiosity most people would recognize. And I think I, I would split the difference between, I think I agree with you in substance, I just choose not to use the word faith. Right, but the reason I, wa- I, I want to insist on, on the word is because I want people to not have naive epistemologies um, where they believe in things like naive rationalism or naive empiricism where they don't recognize the limits of their own epistemology. They don't realize that everything that they value and and recognize as rationality is itself based on properly basic beliefs for which they don't have a justification, which I, and I, and I don't think that they just lack a justification. I mean, I think no one has a justification. I think probably no justification could be offered uh, for at least most of these, if not all of them. Now, that's important. I think it's important for anyone in movement atheism to um, espouse rationality, uh, reasonableness, logic, criticism, skeptical thinking, um, and scientific values. But I think you can only do that if you genuinely re- genuinely recognize the limits of your epistemology and not have a kind of 
sort of la-la fantasy epistemology where all of your beliefs are born of, of, of good reasons and good evidence and that you have some way of ending this justificatory regress in something that is uh, anything other than what, what I call blind faith or at least unwarranted assumptions. I think that ultimately it all ends in un unwarranted assumptions, but that doesn't mean that the only thing that we have to limit ourselves to are unwarranted assumptions or we can avail of, uh, ourselves of unwarranted assumptions anytime we like. I think that there's a very, very narrow band of things that we can believe um, on insufficient evidence uh, or on no evidence at all. And that's the properly basic beliefs. And once we've got those up and running, we've got the ladder we need to do all the rest of the, of, of the work of critical thinking and rationality and scientific um, theorizing that, that we need to do. But if you are unwilling um, to admit that uh, a, a rational epistemology rests on things that are not themselves rationally defensible, um, you are really vulnerable to certain uh, apologetical moves. I mean, presuppositionalism as as a an apologetic strategy against atheism has really gained a lot of ground uh, and got a lot of traction uh, precisely because they were able to stump people in the atheist movement with questions as simple as, how do you know that? Oh, and how do you know that? And how do you know that? And then people would try to come up with uh, reasons for why it, it was rational to be re rational. Uh, and they would try to do this and insist that they weren't engaged in circular reasoning. Or they would try to confect indubitable certainties on wh which could serve as the foundation for rationality, all of which I think is a fool's errand. And that's why so many people were made to look like fools from uh, an apologetical style, presuppositionalism, which is a little more than a philosophy 101 question, how do you know that, reiterated. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't want movement atheism to, to fall prey to such an easy apologetic. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make us look like we live in the kingdom of reason when we're unwilling to admit the limits of our own epistemology. Yeah, honestly, I think arguably one of the biggest blows to presuppositionalism was simply the fact that it was repudiated by big name apologists. Like it was rejected by, I think, William Lane Craig and a couple others who just said, you guys are missing the mark. And I feel like that was probably the biggest blow to presuppositionalism. And as for movement atheism, I think that exposing ourselves to the vulnerability of claiming to take things on faith I think that is also, that's the, that's the uh, balance I'm trying to strike here, is I don't want to appear epistemologically naive, but I also don't want to use the word faith just because I know exactly, we, we both know exactly how it's going to be used. So just really quick, on your view, just reiterate, why is it different when it comes to theists? Like, if someone were to agree with you and say, yes, I have faith, that's the word I'm choosing to use here, um, to describe my properly basic beliefs, and then a theist says, well, I have faith in God, or I have faith in Scripture. Right. Why is that yeah, different? That, yeah, that's a great question. Okay. On my view, if uh, one accepts the things that I have listed as properly basic beliefs um, uh, as articles of faith, the difference is, once you have accepted those, you now have the, 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 um, the arsenal of rationality in place. That's not true when you say, I believe that I have a soul. That's not a universal belief. 
it is not an incorrigible or undeniable or indubitable belief. It's not necessarily inerrant, okay? Uh, it is not uh, a belief that you didn't have to be taught. It is not a belief that, you, uh, that, that, that can't be rejected, right, and abandoned without having to change everything else in your belief set, okay? That's not true of these properly basic beliefs. If you abandon the belief that uh, there's a mind-independent reality, you're going to seem crazy. I mean, and I don't just mean say that you don't believe it. I mean live as if you don't believe it. You're going to seem like you're crazy. You're not going to be able to live as if you don't trust the evidence of your senses or that you don't rely on your memory. You're not going to be able to live as if you don't uh, believe uh, that there are causes and effects. All of these beliefs are the beliefs that make rationality possible, that make it possible for us to then distinguish between nonsense and well-supported beliefs. The concept of something being well-warranted and rational as opposed to being unwarranted or, uh, and, and, and irrational, that capacity to make those distinctions is composed of these beliefs that we've been talking about. But that's not a characteristic of a belief in a God or a belief in a soul or a belief in karma or any of these other things, right? Those are not properly basic beliefs. They are not ingredients in rationality. They are simply surplus to requirements. If you want rationality, you have to believe certain things. And there's no good reason to believe those things, it, but it is the believing of those things that makes it possible for you to reject other things as bullshit. You cannot, on the basis of, of believing that there's a soul, the principle of karma, uh, the trinity, um, the Yahweh, or any of these other things, you cannot, on, on the basis of those beliefs, no matter how important they are to your worldview, then uh, show that, that that those beliefs are ingredients in rationality itself, and then sift through the rest of, of your belief sets and point out the irrationalities. Right? So what's different about properly basic beliefs is precisely that they are ingredients in rationality to such a high degree that if a person rejects them, they appear irrational and possibly even mad. That's not true for all the, these other beliefs. right? All these other beliefs are simply basic beliefs. There's nothing special about them. They're not related to rationality. They're just surplus to requirements. It's just something you've decorated your worldview with. And then you might have plugged in a whole bunch of other things um, into that that might be connected to it so that your much of your worldview rests on it. But what doesn't rest on it is rationality. Your ability to be rational as a believer in all kinds of faith-based religions and dogmas, okay, your, your capacity to be rational has nothing to do with all of those dogmas. It has to do with the properly basic beliefs that we've been talking about, right? Mm -hmm. They're independent of one another. So in other words, if you want to be able to distinguish sense from nonsense, you've got to believe the things that we've been talking about. And to the extent that you believe those things, you're going to be able to, um, to, uh, to reason clearly. All of that other stuff is just surplus to requirements. It's, it's just junk. It's irrelevant to rationality. It doesn't help you sift truth from falsity, rationality from irrationality. So that's the difference, right? It's not that I'm in, encouraging people to believe anything on faith. I would love it if we had a proof of other minds. I would love it if we could prove that one can justify induction. But I don't think we have that. And so I have to admit, okay, we believe these things on faith. But not everything believed on faith uh, uh, is part of the architecture of rationality. Uh, right. And so that's the, that's the difference. So just having faith is not really the key issue. It's the object of faith. 
So that's right. The things that you have faith in, or at least some of you know the properly basic beliefs, at least some of them, are the ingredients of rationality itself. Whereas God is a disembodied mind that you know telepathically communicates with his followers and you know has a favorite country, which is America, by the way. I'm talking to a <laughs> Canadian, so I have to establish that right now. And you know also has very particular position uh, opinions about your sex life and various details about it. That is different than the ingredients of rationality or, uh, you know, an immaterial soul, which I loved what Sean Carroll said about it. He said, um, it's an ill-defined metaphysical substance not subject to the known laws of physics that interacts with the atoms in our brains in ways that have thus far eluded every controlled experiment ever performed in the history of science. That object of faith is quite different than simply the component parts of rationality itself. Right, right. That's very well put. Yeah, I... Well, Thanks, Sean Carroll. I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> uh, I mean, this has been sort of a self-reflection episode, just, you know, conversation among atheists. But thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. I feel smarter every time I talk to you. Uh, likewise. Thank you. I, I have to thank you not just for um, uh, inviting me to have this conversation with you, but for all of the, the pushback that you were you were giving me, I, I really felt that uh, my view would, um, had to be better articulated. I, in a way, I wish I had been better prepared for it, but that was really good. I, I, I really felt um, that uh, my view was being tested, and I was forced to to sort of articulate it. And I don't mean articulate it just in words. I mean articulate in the sense of of movement, articulating uh, a, a movement. I felt I had to you know to expand and flesh out the idea. Uh, in a way that I haven't been asked to do in a long time. So thank you very much for that. This was great. Well, you heard it from Ozzy, everybody. I won the end. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I I felt challenged too, and I, I definitely, you put pressure on places I hadn't really thought about, and yeah, I definitely am going to need to think a lot about this one. And um, for anyone who, you know, if you listen to this multiple times, there's definitely a lot there. Um, Ozzy is a wealth of knowledge, and... I, yeah, and I definitely want to have you back on soon, hopefully on Walden Pod, to talk about uh, neutral monism. Uh, yeah, sure. Oh, by the way, I have been loving both of your podcasts. Um, Thank I've you. been just gobbling them up. And uh, this not uh, relevant to what we've been talking about, but I particularly like the one that you did about Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. I thought that was, <laughs> that was great. I really love that. Yeah, I'm <laughs> a huge fan. That. No, that I actually... Like, that was like a Christmas present to me. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was was terrific fun. That's all I have for you today. Thanks again to Ozzy for coming on. His YouTube channel is linked in the description. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast channel, Roughly 98% of you subscribed via podcast haven't subscribed on YouTube yet, so if you would, that would be a big help, and it would be very much appreciated. I have two new patrons to thank, Daniel and Charles Burroughs. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you, Charles Burroughs. And I'd like to thank my patron Hall of Fame, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Pre-Nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to sit on God's lap to slap him in the face, you can like us on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. 
Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.